really going to do it this week. We're going to think out loud on America Out Loud. I often think about these times we spend together every week as an opportunity uh, to think out loud together. Now, no, I don't say everything out loud that I think, and I certainly hope you don't either. We do need to use some discretion, but it's a little bit more fun just to kind of process things out loud together. And and sometimes when I find myself saying things out loud, I'm surprised what I say. Uh, and yeah, I agree that can be a good thing or a bad thing. And I guess we'll find out what kind of thing it will be today as we think out loud together. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. I'm the pastor at Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida. A church like I hope you attend, where we make every effort to be faithful to God, to understand the Bible and everything that it says to us about how we should live and what God expects of us and what we can expect of God because it is a covenant relationship and that ought to stretch your thinking, which is another thing we do here on the podcast. We stretch each other, at least I hope we do, in God's direction. And we're going to get to one of those ideas about stretching in God's direction a little bit later today. But this is Instant Sermon Weekend. And I've been doing that on the podcast because we do that at church. Every time there's a month with five Sundays, we designate the fifth Sunday of that month to be Instant Sermon Sunday. Now, the idea is really simple. It seems to have been... Uh, accepted well by our church, and we seem to have benefited from it. Uh, Some of my pastor friends think I'm a little crazy when I tell them what we do, but what we do is every time there's a fifth Sunday in a month, we pass out little three-by-five cards. We just do it simple analog way and, and invite people, anybody who wants to, to write down a question, a thought, refer to a verse of Scripture, anything like that that's on their mind. And then I just, during the sermon portion of our church, I just take those cards one at a time, and we talk about them. We talk out loud. We think out loud. And sometimes we have a little conversation. It's kind of hard in a larger group setting to have a conversation, but sometimes we will have a little dialogue back and forth. But usually it just puts me on the spot to respond to what's on people's minds. Now, some people like to think of that Sunday, the fifth Sunday of the month, as Stump the Pastor Sunday, but a long time ago, I I said to people, you can never think of it as Stump the Pastor Sunday, because that would be way too easy. And you know, not one person has ever argued with me that it would be too easy to stump me. And I, and I think that's that's a good thing because they realize I'm not God's answer man and I don't pretend to be. But God does help us when we look at the scriptures and he helps those of us he's called to be his pastors to think through things and to help people think through them. That's part of what God expects us to do. So we do that every time there's a fifth Sunday and I started doing that here on the program because I thought, well, why not do something similar and give you a little flavor of what we do at our church? And so we've been doing that for a while. Now, the difference is that I get to pick the questions, and some of you will think, well, that's that's a sure good way to do it. And, and well, I have to admit that it is, but I don't try to pick questions that are just 
uh, run-of-the-mill questions. I try to pick questions that I know people are thinking about and that are asking, and I don't typically spend a lot of time writing out the answers because I want to give you a little bit of a flavor of what it's like for me to just talk about something that somebody asks. And so you may, you may find that, well, I say something a little weird sometimes or odd, or you might say, he needs to think that through more. Well, you're probably right. I do need to think some things through more. But you know what I'd like to encourage you to do, and I'm not sure we encourage each other enough to do this, you know, we're, we are so bombarded by information, and I find this is true for me because I listen to, to this person talk and that person talk, and I read books and all the kind of stuff. So there's a fair amount of input in my life, and I do that because I want to be aware of what's going on, and I want to study carefully because I want to be equipped to do things like a Sunday morning sermon. Odd as that may think, may, may seem to people, I, I try to do a good job with that. And so I try to, to keep myself aware of at least, a, I don't pretend to be an expert, but keep up with current events, keep up with what people are saying in the church world or in the Bible study world. And again, it's impossible to keep up with everything, but I do what I do. And it's amazing how God helps me with that. And I'm grateful. Well, all that to say this. I think through some of these kind of things, and when I get an idea here or there, then I just, I think about it, and I wonder about it, and I wonder how it connects to this or how it connects to that. And one of the things that I find myself thinking is how neat it is that God helps us make those connections. And since this is a kind of different week that we spend together with this instant sermon idea, I want to challenge you to spend a little more time thinking about some of these things and connecting the dots on some things rather than just regurgitating. Oh, there's a word for you that's quite vivid, isn't it? Maybe I should say just saying what everyone has always said. Because sometimes we need to think about it a little differently, not necessarily that somebody was wrong that we heard. No, I'm not necessarily saying that. It's possible they could be wrong. That happens to all of us from time to time. But maybe it's because God wants you to think about it a little differently because, well, I've lived long enough to know that times have changed. Times are different today than they were 40 years ago, for example. And, and I think we need to be aware of that and think about that and think about how that affects not the foundational truth of the Bible, but maybe the way that we express it to people who are searching and seeking and wondering about the Bible. So think about that. And also when you have questions, and I hope you do have questions, I want to encourage you to think about how you might find answers to those questions. Because I'm convinced that God helps us with that. And, and for me, at least the way God wired me, questions have always helped me. I ask questions and I think about questions and I try to answer questions and I try to come up with better questions. It, it's not something I really find myself working at a lot. It just seems to be the way I, I was created to think. And maybe you have been reluctant to ask questions because you were told at one time or another, well, you shouldn't ask that question. Well, I can tell you for sure there are some inappropriate questions. There are questions that I ask sometimes when I'm doing a little study of the Bible, and I realize, well, I can ask that question, so what? But the text isn't going to answer that question, so I put that question aside. Why? 
why stew on it? Why think about it when I know the passage I'm studying isn't going to answer that question? So I just put it aside and focus on what the passage is going to tell me. Well, anyway, I've gone on a little longer than I thought I would about that. But don't be afraid of questions. Ask them and then answer them. And then as you're answering, if you find you've asked a question that the Bible doesn't address in the way you started out asking, think about maybe you need to ask the question a little differently. Or maybe it's the kind of question that God hasn't answered. The why questions are questions God doesn't regularly answer. Sometimes, but not always. And it helped me a long time ago when I realized I needed to quit asking why about some of the things that happen in life and to think about how I can make meaning out of the things that happen, make sense of them, and grow through them. So maybe, that, maybe that'll help you. Anyway, ask some questions. So here's, here's my first question that I, that I have today, and, and I know a lot of people think this, and they don't always say it to me, but they have to think of it. So I have frequently said, and it's true, that politics won't save us. And at the same time, people could challenge me and say, yet you encourage active involvement in the political process, and I do. You need to get involved wherever you can in whatever way God leads you to get involved and not shy away from it. Take your Christian convictions and participate. Well, people say that if politics won't save us, and on the other hand, I encourage involvement in the political process, that sounds like a contradiction. Why should we be involved in the political process if politics won't save us? Well, that's a very good question. Why should we be involved in the political process? If politics won't save us. Well, let's let's be clear. Politics will not save us. There's no question about that. That's not the point. That's not the point at all. But we are in this world and we are responsible to be good stewards of what God has given us. And so we need to make sure we think about things a little bit beyond the obvious. And the obvious is politics won't save us. The other obvious thing And here we go, thinking out loud, so hang on with me. The other obvious thing is that if good people, if good-hearted people, people like you, at least I hope you're good-hearted. If you're not, get good-hearted before we finish today, all right? If good-hearted people like you don't get involved in the process, then what kind of people will be involved? And I know with certainty, you know this too, you look around, think about it. You don't have to have anybody answer this for for you because you can see it. It's it's obvious. If good-hearted people don't get involved, the black-hearted people will take over. Now, you say, wait a minute, what are you talking about? Well, I think you know what I'm talking about. You can tell the difference between people with good hearts and people with other motives or evil intent. And yes, whether they think so or want to say it's so, there are people out there with evil intent And if we, as God's people, don't get involved, they will. And then you can be sure God's will won't be done in that arena, in that decision-making process. Now, the other thing that I've said frequently that may help you with this is that I distinguish between citizenship and politics. And I refuse to let people push me into a corner and say, well, you're just talking about words. No, I'm not. I mean this sincerely, and I will not be pushed around by someone, and I will not 
change because that's what they want me to think. See, a lot of people think that anytime you're involved in the political process, whether you go to a city council meeting or go to your state legislature and testify before a committee hearing, they think that's politics. Well, it's a political environment. I don't deny that. Nobody would deny that. We understand that. But just because I'm there participating in the political environment and just because the people who have those positions of responsibility, either members of the city council or members of the state legislature, just because they are involved right in the middle of it by virtue of their being there in politics doesn't mean I'm there to play politics. I go to advocate for, to speak up for, that which is right rather than that which is wrong. And I think that's our responsibility as citizens. See, politics is fine. It's the legitimate pursuit of a responsibility. People run for office and they get involved in politics because they want to be elected to the city council or the state legislature or to be governor or whatever. Well, there's there's nothing wrong with that. We need good people to, to engage that and to run for office. I never expect to run for office, have no plans for it. But I'm eager to be involved as a citizen because that's my responsibility because this country expects its people to participate. Now, you might say, oh, no, they don't. They push me off at any time. Of course they do. That's part of what they do to keep you from advocating for what you want, to keep you from getting what you want because they want what they want. And so that shouldn't surprise us. I mean, really, think about it carefully. You understand that. But I always think of citizenship as the pursuit of righteous government. So when I'm involved in some of these kind of things and forming policy or talking about ideas, and I did some of that this past week, then that's part of my citizenship responsibility. That's not because I want to be political or because I am political. I'm not pursuing the power of a political office. I want to be a good citizen and advocate for the right things. Now, the other thing that that we have to recognize, and this is probably a longer answer than some of you were expecting or maybe that you even wanted, but the other thing we have to realize is that the reason that the political process won't save us is because salvation comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And politics is not at all an arena that's going to solve our deepest, most important problems. All right? The other reason is that the political process doesn't develop the kind of people that we need to serve in those offices. Only Christ develops that kind of person. Now, that's very interesting to me how, how the, uh, how should I say, the, the influence of being in a political office can affect people. And I heard it described uh, quite a few years ago by one person who was fairly new to being a representative in the Florida State House. And I heard this person say one of the problems of going to Tallahassee, Tallahassee is the capital of Florida, and that's where the legislature meets. One of the problems of going to Tallahassee is that when you get up there, wait for this, are you ready for this? It shouldn't surprise us, but we don't think about this. this. This person said when you get up there, everybody says yes. Boy, the, the bells went off in my head, and I thought, that's exactly right. When you go up there, you are one of, yeah, quite a few representatives, but not very many in the scheme of things. And so everybody says yes to everything you want, 
And that can be really, really hard on a person's perspective. And so we can kind of get the idea that, well, I'm pretty important. They all say yes to me. Well, only Christ develops the kind of people that can do the right thing when no one is watching or when everybody is saying, yes, I'll get you whatever you want. Uh, Only becoming a Christian, a, a devoted follower of Jesus, can get a person to say in their heart and in their mind and in their behavior, I will only do what's right no matter what. It takes a great deal of maturity to exercise that kind of self-restraint when everybody is saying yes and when you could get what you want in more ways than you ever imagined. Only mature followers of Jesus can say no to those kinds of temptations. Well, that's why I say, part of why I say, politics won't save us because it's got to be the right people and only Formation in Christ-likeness makes the right people. Only people who know the principles of the Bible can craft laws that align with what God says is just and right. Now, I don't necessarily think they have to go up there and wear, wear their Christian faith on their sleeve. Many of them are not shy, at least in Florida, about proclaiming their commitments to, to Christ and to doing the right thing. One now former Florida state senator said to a group of people publicly that every time he would leave to go to Tallahassee, he would determine to go and do the right thing, to honor God. Well, I think that's important for people to do that. And it's only people who have a mature understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus that can do that. They're the only ones that can write the correct laws that align with what God said is right. And keep from violating what God said is wrong. Only people with that kind of character will have the moral authority that that they can stand up to the pressures and not give in to expedience. A lot of pressure and a lot of difficulties that people navigate. I know one member of the Florida House that might well have been some years later elected to the United States Congress, but he had to make a hard decision And I respected his decision. I understand why he did it. I didn't fault him for it, but it was used against him in the campaign, and he ultimately lost. It was close, but he lost. Well, he had to make a principled decision, and he made that decision as best he could in the environment he was in. And I don't think we can blame him for it, but I do respect how he came to that decision, and he knew and could anticipate some of the consequences, but he had to live with that. And so we need to have the kind of people who can make the hard decisions and, and not cave in when the pressure's on. I think that, that's really huge. You know, and, and we, need to, we need to be involved in the process. We may, need to, to uh, how should I say, support those who do, do good and correct those who do wrong, all of that. And, and one of the reasons, I, I like what Daniel Webster said, one of the reasons that, that I say that politics won't save us is, is because it won't. But Daniel Webster said years ago, whatever makes men good Christians makes them good citizens. And so I, I kind of think about that, and I, and I lean on that, and, and that's really the whole point. And we need to be involved so that good-hearted people can advance the right kind of things because when the right things are in place, it's good for people. When the wrong things are in place, it's bad. 
and we want to make sure things are good for people. Well, that was a long answer, but I guess some of the answers might even get longer as we go along here. We'll see. So another question comes along. Jesus is often portrayed as the Lamb of God and then by association as powerless. Consequently, Christians are often admonished to shrink from power, and indeed Christians are often suspicious of anyone with power or who wields power of any kind. What's up with power? Well, I suppose we go on a long time when we try to say what's up with power. I have seen the power argument used to frame a lot of things, and it's gotten quite popular these days to to frame anything in terms of power and to try to discredit perspectives because of power dynamics. And the, the implication is that people with power use it and people without power have no capacity to resist it or suffer the consequences of those who exercise power. Well, there's some small bit of truth to that, but that's only part of the story. There's a lot of ways that people can resist people who try to throw their weight around or exercise their power. And I don't think we should too quickly and easily give in to the power dynamic arguments. At the same time, we as Christians have a peculiar relationship, often I should say, often have a peculiar relationship with the concept of power. Well, it's true that Christians sometimes push power away as though they would be guilty of abuse of power by association. Now think about that. Sometimes Christians resist the concept of power, and I think they're just concerned that they don't want to abuse power, or they've seen people abuse it. I've seen it abused. I've I've suffered from people abusing power. You probably have too. Welcome to the world. Now stand back up and dust yourself off and let's keep going. But sometimes Christians push this away as though just because they might be associated with or have decision-making authority, decision-making power, that that's somehow a bad thing and makes them guilty of something. Well, now, interestingly, some of those same Christians truly enjoy their role as boss of their local church and regularly calling the pastor to account for every church deficiency. Now, isn't that interesting? And we need to recognize things for what they are. And I don't know that every church has a church boss, as I'm describing it here. But sometimes the very people that want to talk about, well, we shouldn't have power, are by the way they frame things and the way they characterize things are really trying to get power for themselves. This this idea of power is a very seductive and, and interesting concept. And it's is too often, uh, I, I don't mean to be defensive about this, I just mean to be plain spoken about this, too often people blame pastors for things that, that pastors can't control. And, and we need to be careful about because that's an exercise of, of someone trying to tear down what they see as the pastor's power. See, I think these people who try to manipulate that way really love power while pretending that they're only trying to do the right thing and they're only speaking up reluctantly because they have to and somebody needs to. So we need to be careful about that. At the same time, power in and of itself is neutral. Having decision-making authority is neutral. Having that 
responsibility is neither good or bad. It's just a reality. Somebody has to decide. Somebody has to be governor of the state, for example. Power takes on moral significance. By that, I mean it's either right or wrong, depending upon how it's exercised. Now, power can be abused. Maybe you've been around that kind of a situation. Maybe not. And, and when it's abused, it hurts people. And, and it's not a good thing. And it hurts the person that's abusing the power because treating people that way isn't good for them either. So it can be, and often is, I admit that, quite destructive. On the other hand, power used properly and in the fear of the Lord can help people and build them up. So we need to understand some of the some of the dynamics here. It's not the power that's inherently bad, it's the way it's used. And it's often a revelation of a person's character by how they use that power. Do they lord it over people or do they serve people? Now, you may remember the story of King Saul. That's a kind of an interesting way to think about this idea of power. He was Israel's first king, anointed by Samuel. But he turned away from faithfulness to God and began to use his power for his own ambition. And he did things he should not have done. He overstepped his authority, and he hurt himself and all Israel. And it resulted in God making the determination that Saul would have to be replaced as king. He, he violated what God asked him to do, and God said, enough already. And you may remember the story, God replaced Saul with King David. So David now came to the throne, and he had, and this is a long story, it's not as quick as I made it sound. Um, David came to the throne, and now he was exercising authority as king. Well, you can read the story of David, and you can discover that he was not perfect in the way he did things. But, overall, David served for the well-being of the people, and Israel thrived. The kingdom of David is widely remembered in the scriptures and by the people of God, as we look at their history, as a high point in the kingdom. People thrived. Israel thrived when David was king. And so he's remembered as the king that presided over the best days of God's people. And when you read his story, you can read how he did not use power appropriately, but he also used it honorably sometimes. And so there's a little bit of a contrast between the way someone uses power appropriately and someone didn't. Now, I think the best way to think about how we exercise power is to adopt what I would call a servant leadership perspective. Servant leadership can be adopted as a guiding philosophy and practice. And anyone with power should seriously consider servant leadership as their North Star or guiding principle. I think that's, that's a very helpful corrective to us. And having the servant leadership paradigm or adopting that philosophy and practice doesn't mean we might not have to make hard decisions. It doesn't mean that it's an easier path because we've decided to be a servant leader. Properly understood, I'm convinced the servant leadership approach is much more difficult than people realize. So let me start out by helping us understand that a little bit. Now, servant leadership, by that I don't mean subservient leadership or subservience at all. 
Now, all too often, and this is where people get confused, and I want to make sure we think this through carefully, all too often people think that if you're going to be a servant leadership, that means you do every little menial task that comes along. And if you're a proper leader, you're doing all the menial tasks so other people don't have to. Uh, Sure, leaders should do menial tasks. If you see a piece of paper on the floor, it doesn't hurt to pick it up. If you need a chair moved from one room to another, it doesn't hurt for the leader to move the chair. No one is above that. Okay, so make sure you understand clearly what I'm saying. No one is above doing the ordinary tasks. A leader doesn't walk into a room and start saying, you pick up that paper, you move that chair. Now, there might be an appropriate time for the leader to give that kind of direction. But what we're talking about here is is not defining servant leadership as the one who does the menial tasks versus the one who gives direction. We're talking about that as a mindset. And if you serve as a servant leadership, you adopt this definition that I'm indebted to a man named Jim Lobb for developing. But he said, and I think he said it so well, servant leadership is an understanding and practice of leadership that puts the well-being of the led ahead of the self-interest of the leader. Now, think about that one carefully. Servant leadership is an understanding and practice of leadership that puts the well-being of the led ahead of the self-interest of the leader. Now, just think about that, and we'll come back to that in a minute. We're about to take a break, but just think about that and ask yourself, how many times have you been in a situation where someone put their self-interest ahead of everybody else? Someone knew what they could get out of it, and so they did, and the people's well-being was not their first consideration. Well, that's what we mean by abusing power. So we're going we're gonna to talk about this idea of servant leadership a little bit more and this idea of power. And then we'll get on with a few more questions for the Instant Sermon weekend. Uh, and yes, we're going to talk about a very specific way we can stretch in God's direction. So you come back in just a minute, take a break, dust off your brain, I'll do the same, and I'll be back. Cofix RX Nasal Solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flus, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. You've heard Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company discuss the harmful effects of spike protein in your body. And now they found the solution, the miracle enzyme natokinase. Their spike support formula contains natokinase, the most compelling and scientifically supported approach to safely clear spike protein out of the body. What's more, spike support is optimized with other all-natural, non-GMO ingredients, like dandelion root, to help prevent spike protein from binding to your cells. Everyone should take daily spike support so you can feel your best. America Out Loud listeners can go to outloudcare.com today and use code OUTLOUD. 
for 25% off your first order. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. Oral hygiene hasn't changed in 50 years, but our diet and the way we eat has, creating an environment in your mouth for bacteria to wreak havoc on your teeth and gums. For better oral health, get Spry Dental Defense, an oral care line designed to combat acid-creating bacteria. The toothpaste, mouthwash, mints, and gum all contain xylitol, a natural ingredient shown to dramatically improve oral health. Spry can be found online and at all fine natural retailers. Trouble concentrating or recalling information is frustrating, embarrassing, and kills productivity. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created Focus and Recall to boost your brain power. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Focus and Recall is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients to help you immediately sharpen focus, concentrate longer, and strengthen recall. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code out loud. AmericaOutloud.com. If you can't find it here, you can't find it anywhere. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought, working hard to earn your trust for seven incredible years and counting. America Out Loud Talk Radio, liberty and justice for all. Well, continuing on with this idea of power and its abuse, let's circle back and make sure we understand what we're talking about before we get too far into it. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. Thanks for being back with us. We've been enjoying instant sermon weekend here on the program and what that is is simply where I take questions and then I just talk about them and, and try to give you a flavor of what it's like at our church when we have Instant Sermon Sunday when people hand me a stack of cards and then we kind of go through and talk about that. Well, we're kind of doing that here today. And one of the questions that we all should be thinking about is this concept of power. It's used in a lot of ways these days. And, and often we think of it as somebody who's in charge abusing that power acting in an autocratic way when we don't think they should act that way, and I agree they shouldn't. But we also have to have a proper understanding of how do we handle when we have what you might rightly call leadership power or decision-making responsibility. If you don't like the idea of power, think of it as somebody has to decide, somebody has to set the direction, and the rest of us need to cooperate. Well, servant leadership is what I suggested as the way to navigate through these issues. When somebody has to have decision-making responsibility and somebody has to say, we're going this way, and that's their decision to make, we need to understand if that happens to be us, how do we exercise that? How do we think things through? What's our best guiding principle for that? And I suggested servant leadership, and I suggested that servant leadership is not about subservience. It's not about the leader doing all the menial tasks just to prove that they can. No, we all can do those things. It doesn't mean the leader is above that, but sometimes, quite honestly, sometimes the leader needs to leave those tasks to other people lest he or she doesn't fulfill their responsibilities as the leader. No, servant leadership 
is an understanding and practice of leadership that puts the well-being of the led ahead of the self-interest of the leader. And that last phrase, self-interest, is really key. The self-interest of the leader. Often, when you are a person in charge, you have the opportunity to feed your own self-interest. And I'm suggesting that servant leadership challenges that and says the leader needs to think, how do I put the well-being of the other people ahead of my self-interest? And yes, I believe Jesus was the quintessential example of servant leadership, not because he did menial tasks. He did. Everybody points to Jesus washing the disciples' feet. That's fine. He did. But they miss the point when they say that servant leadership equates to doing menial tasks. They miss the point entirely. See, Jesus was faithful as a servant leadership, as a, sorry, as a servant leader when he went to the cross. We, um, we clearly know that Jesus had the power to avoid the cross. We clearly know, read the story, he didn't want to do it. He clearly prayed that, what was the phrase, you remember it? If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Well, that certainly isn't someone who's eager to do it, but he expressed willingness to do it. And he recognized that he had to put the well-being of all of us ahead of his self-interest. He laid down his prerogatives. You can see that clearly in the scriptures. He laid down what he could have done for us. And, and it wasn't in his self-interest to take on the sin of the world. It was in our best interest. And so he did what was best for us because he knew we could not save ourselves. And be sure we come to grips with this, because I don't know if we think about this in these terms. It was absolutely not that Jesus did not have the power to avoid the cross. He could have. There's an old song. Some of you may remember it. Haven't heard it for a long time. It's an old song. It says, he could have called, referring to Jesus, he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and me. See, that's the example of servant leadership, not the basin and the towel. That was significant. He wasn't above that. But what was really significant is when he set aside his power to avoid the cross, to embrace the cross. Now, some people might say, well, yeah, but that's the Lamb of God that the Bible talks about. Yes, it is. Well, if Jesus is portrayed as the Lamb of God, he's not portrayed as powerful. Well, okay, he is portrayed as a Lamb of God for a number of reasons. One of those is so we would understand he was the perfect sacrifice for the sin of the world. And so we could understand that he went to the cross willingly. But it's not to say that Jesus did not have, does not have, real power. If you doubt the power of Jesus, read Revelation and see what he will one day do to crush evil. Now, sometimes we read Revelation and we forget that, and I want to make sure we don't. In Revelation, it is absolutely clear that Jesus, acting as King of Kings, crushes evil, and he shows no reluctance to use his power to destroy evil. Now, why does he want to destroy evil? Well, he destroys evil because evil 
hurts his creation and his people. And he wants to crush evil so we are not damaged by evil anymore. He wields that power to deliver us from evil. You ever prayed the prayer, deliver us from evil? One day, this powerful king of kings, this man who came to be this perfect sacrifice, this man who is now exalted forever, he's going to come and wield that power, and he's going to deliver us from evil. Now, he's not doing that to show off, look who I am, I'm so powerful. That, that's not Jesus at all. You don't get any of that sense. He's not acting vindictively. Well, I'll get you. We don't get any of that sense either. He's acting to redeem and restore and resolve once and for all the problem of evil. He laid down his life to redeem the world. And now, having overcome evil and crushed it, with his death, burial, and resurrection, he is now one day going to restore everything like it was meant to be. And we should give thanks that God has given us this powerful son named Jesus, that we should give thanks that God exalted him. It wasn't by happenstance or accident. It's because he humbled himself and did what was best for his people. His glorification is not so much for his own sake, but for ours. For ours. He did that for us. I think that's enormously significant. All right, well, that's only two questions, but I guess that was helpful stuff. I hope so. I want us to think about some of those things carefully. So let's take another question. Here's one you might not expect, but yeah, people talk about this sometimes, and, and so I get drawn into those conversations. But question boils down to this. What do you think about the presidential campaign? <laughs> well, what do I think? Well, uh, let's think about that. First, first, I think that I'm really glad somebody's asking those kinds of questions. I'm really glad people are thinking about it. And I'm really glad people will take the courage to bring it up and say, what should we think? What do you think? Can you help me sort all this out? And I think we help each other, and, and this is an ongoing dynamic process. What I think today, probably different than what I think next week about some of the things that are going on. Uh, so the first, my first response is I'm really glad people are thinking about it. Now, I know a lot of people, maybe you're one of them, just want it to get over with. You just get tired of it. I understand that, too. I get tired of it, too. But being tired of it is not an excuse. Okay, I get tired of a lot of things. You do, too. But we press on. We have to press on, and we should not allow ourselves to, to cave into the I'm tired of this stuff. We need, to, we need to focus and stay engaged with all this. The second thought, and you're going to think this is ridiculous, and maybe it is. second thought I had was, yeah, isn't this presidential campaigning entertaining? Well, I think that's a fair posture to take because it is. There's a lot of stuff that goes on. This candidate does that, and the other candidate does the other thing, and this one says this, and the other one answers back with that. And it can become a little bit of a show, an entertainment. And so sometimes we just don't take everything so seriously because we recognize, well, this is what goes on, and we just kind of take it in and let it go. And at the same time, we're glad we're not them, right? Well, I am anyway. Third thing that we should do is we should use this time of campaigning as an opportunity to learn about both the campaigning process 
and the candidates. Now, the campaigning process is, it is what it is. And people say, oh, I wish it wasn't this or I wish it wasn't that. You know, under our present laws, it's not going to be different. There's a lot at stake. A lot of people want to be elected to this office or that office. And it's just not going to change. It's just the way it is. And, and you and I wishing for it isn't going to help. And so when we learn about it, then we can learn because the presidential campaign is front and center in so many ways, we can also begin to notice how that process affects other campaigns. Let me give you one idea, one example of that that I think a lot of us miss. The first ballot for any candidate running for office comes when people either decide to give them money to support their campaign or not. Often, when you pay attention to this and two or three candidates are running in a race, you'll see news reports that report how much they've raised to support their campaign. And sometimes a candidate has raised 10 times more than that candidate's opponent. That's very significant because it says people who are willing to donate to campaigns have donated to this one and not that one. So that's an example of how we need to pay attention to things. And like so many things, Money is very influential. You may not like it. You don't have to like it. I'm not telling you to like it, but it is what it is. And so those are the kind of things we need to to observe. So it's really a good opportunity to learn about the campaigning process and to remember how the candidates handle themselves and to remember how the campaigns operate. Because when you start to notice how campaigns operate, it helps you sort out the candidates a little bit because you find out. For example, recently in a campaign locally here where I live, there was absolutely, without question, lying that went on about one candidate. A couple of candidates, really, not just one. They're out and out lies. And and it wasn't simply innuendo. Some people say, well, they were just kind of making that... No, it was a lie, and they knew it. To try to make the connections they were making, to make the statements they made, they knew it was a lie. They were just playing wait for it, politics. Well, we need to notice those kind of things and watch for that. And when you begin to notice and and be aware of how some of these campaigns work, you can begin to tell. And, and those people that lied like they did at this last campaign have completely discredited themselves in my eyes. And, and the people that align themselves with them for future campaigns, they discredit themselves by association. And at some point, I will probably get to say that to someone or... Maybe I should say I have to say that to someone, but I learned from watching the campaign process, and you need to, too. Don't withdraw from it. I know it may not be your favorite subject. It's not mine either, but we have to be aware, and we have to be involved. All right, another question. If God could easily beat Satan, why hasn't he already? He's going to beat him in the end. Why not do it now? Well, I wish I could tell you the answer to that one. I'm ready for him to do it, too. A lot of evil going on. I'd be happy for God to come and fix it, wouldn't you? The reality that's hidden in the answer to this question and in the asking of the question is that God really has already crushed Satan. That happened at the cross. When God came, overcame in the person of Jesus this, the penalty for sin with resurrection, everything, everything was revealed. Because when Satan thought that we who had sinned deserved death, and we did, 
and he thought we would pay that penalty. And Jesus came along and said, not so fast, I'll take care of it, and he did. That was the crushing reality. And make no no mistake about it, do not hesitate to say this, Satan is a defeated foe. Doesn't mean he's going to go down lightly, it didn't suggest that, the Bible doesn't suggest that. But it's over for him, and we can live in that reality. And really, we don't have to hold on to our lives anymore because we realize to be absent from the body, as the Bible says, is to be present with the Lord. And that's only possible because Jesus defeated Satan at the cross. Well, here's another good question, and I'm not sure I have a really, really, uh, how should I say, particularly different answer to this, but I think it's an important question and we should we should come up with answers. And some of you ladies out there, this is a very good opportunity for you to step in and to help. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean this. Here's the question. What can we say as Christians to young women to help them see how special they are as women while the world is making a mockery of women? What would Jesus say to them? Well, that's a very good question. And it's true. The world around us is making a mockery of women. There is no question about it. It is unbelievable, and women everywhere should be outraged at what's happening in the culture around us. Now, we need to say to our young women, because it seems to affect them more than the young men, and I think the young men need to hear it as well. So if you're influential in a young woman's life, you need to, to build them up and to And to say to them things like, I am so thankful God gave us you. You are a remarkable young lady, and and we are so happy to have a young lady like you in our lives. I'm so happy that God gave you the gift of being a young lady. Did you realize that, that you're a girl because God gave you that gift? Did you realize that you're not a boy because God looked down and says, I'm going to give her the gift of being a girl? But you go back to Genesis, we did talk about that couple weeks ago, and I want you to, to make sure you, you find a way to say that. And, and maybe, ladies, maybe you need to help the girls understand that. Um, dads and grandparents and aunts and uncles can probably do that as well. See, I think what Jesus would say to them is how much he loves them and how much he is pleased with, with them and how much he wants to help them, how glad he is that they are a reflection of the image of God. And how many, how many young men and women think that they are a reflection of the image of God? And, and shouldn't we reinforce that to them? Isn't that one of the best things we could say? To remind them that God created you on purpose. God created you. He saw you before you were born. The Bible says that. And he made you just the way he wanted you to be. And he didn't make a mistake. And when you get frustrated because you have a bad hair day or worse... Just remember, God is with you, and he gave you the gift of life, and he made you the way he was because you're special in his sight, and he wouldn't change a thing. And he loves you, and he wants to help you navigate all the ups and downs, the questions and the complications of life. And we can also add, and so do we. And we want you to know, never shrink from your questions. Let us help you answer them, because with God's help, we'll make our way through this. Well, that's a few ideas. Ladies, I really think that that our young women need your mature perspective. So think it through carefully. You can't be beaten up on them, and you got to be careful what you say because sometimes we who are older express ourselves in ways that they hear differently. 
but God can give us insight and help. And I have every confidence we have a lot of women, godly women, that can help our young, young girls navigate some of the really difficult times of life. And I think the men, and we don't want to leave the men out, can help the young men because there aren't enough good, solid examples of what it means to be a, a mature man today. Too many, too many men are torn down in media circles. And, well, that's a different subject, too. But I think you understand what I'm talking about there. All right, how's, how's about another question? I think we got time for a couple more. Please debunk the following narrative and why it is dangerous. And here's the quote that the person gave me. The earth groans every time it registers another birth. And they were they went on to say, to quote UNESCO, world population is 7.8 billion. Did you get that statement? The earth groans every time it registers another birth. Well, what a bunch of nonsense. Well, that's an easy dismissive answer. Well, it is. And I don't mean to be dismissive, except that I do want to be clear. When God created men and women, male and female, in Genesis chapter 1, he said for us to have children, populate the earth. That was our responsibility. Nowhere, not a single place in the Bible, does God warn us that too many people is a problem. Not a single place. Now make sure you don't miss that. All the people that complain about too many people and that we're going to have a population explosion. I heard that as long ago as I can hardly remember. Didn't know what to make of it because nobody corrected it, but I understand it better now. There is no such danger because people are innovative and God gives us abilities to navigate things and to provide for people. The earth is not going to run out of food. There's plenty of ways to produce food, all the rest of it. We just need to realize that one of the foundational things is God never says it's going to be a problem. Never once. People are a problem because we keep food from people, but God said nothing of the sort. It's not a problem. All right, one more question, and we'll go out on a, on a great thought to stretch in God's direction. Here's the question. Galatians 5.22 lists the fruit of the Holy Spirit. What does the phrase, there is no law against these things, mean? Or another version says, against such there is no law. All right, so let's read Galatians 5.22, just to make sure we're all on the same page here. So in Galatians 5.22, from the New Revised Standard Version, Update Edition, it says this, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. Oh, what does all that mean? Well, I, I think it's pretty simple. I think it means what it says. There's no law against such things. If you want to, to behave in a way consistent with the fruit of the Spirit, there's nothing in the law that you're going to violate. If you're patient, you're not going to violate God's law. If you're generous, you're not going to violate God's law. If you're faithful, you're not going to violate God's law. So, often we think about God's restrictions. And he does tell us some things that we shouldn't do. There's no question. Don't steal, for example. Well, that's clear, and that's fine, and that's helpful. We need to know what we shouldn't do, and, and we need to know it in no uncertain terms. What if you become more patient deliberately? What if you become more generous deliberately? Have you been holding out on God or someone else? What if you cultivate kindness Maybe you've been a sorry rascal in some situation. Well, we all have those days and times. I'm not, 
I'm not naive about that, but I do think we need to be purpose, purposeful about being the best people we can be and cultivate what God is doing in our lives. So we stretch in his direction. So we develop absolute confidence in his trustworthiness. The more we develop the qualities and the characteristics mentioned here as the fruit of what God is already doing in our lives, the more we will have confidence to walk with him. Well, that's been Instant Sermon Weekend here on the program. I hope it's been helpful. I never know for sure, just like I never know what questions I'll get at church, but I'll get some more, and you'll hear about them probably the next time we have Instant Sermon Weekend. In the meantime, go with God. He'll go with you. I'm Pastor Rick. Pastor Rick.